Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and it is the 21st of February 2014. This week's show differs somewhat from our usual family-friendly fare. We're dealing with a topic that some listeners will find disturbing, and it's certainly not a subject that's suitable for smaller ears. It's also a conversation around which uh, usual breezy theme music would seem rather out of place, so I've dispensed with that for this week. My guest, Keith Best, will have the final word on today's episode. So let me get the credits in now. Thanks, as always, to Mark Barr, Bernie Barkley, and Songs from the Howling Sea. Also to Katie Pownall. If you have been or continue to be affected by any of the issues in today's show, you'll find details of phone numbers for support and advice on the show page for this episode at www.londonist.com. Well, hello, hello. Now, I get to see quite a lot of offices in my job, and the one I'm sitting in at the moment is the sort of office I would quite like to have. It's covered with uh, interesting trinkets and pictures and certificates and a a lot of uh, dark wood as well, which is always a good thing in my book. And uh, with me here, uh, because it's his office, is Keith Best. He's the chief executive of uh, an organisation called Freedom From Torture, and the the subtitle for that organisation is The Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture. Hello, Keith. Hello. Thanks for having me here today. I want to describe actually arriving at this place because we're in North London, we're between sort of Arsenal, we're off the Seven Sisters Road, that kind of area. And the arrival area that I've just come through has that sort of airy municipal feel. There's a lot of glass, a few people waiting, an entry desk, sort of part airport arrivals lounge and part local modern town hall. And not at all what I was expecting. I didn't really know what I was expecting from the name. And one of the things I've just learned as we've been talking before the interview is the clinical and medical side of things going on here and this it really doesn't feel like a clinical place so perhaps we could unpack what the what this institution does yes well it's very perceptive what you've just said about it Um, where we're sitting now in this center up in north london uh, was purpose-built for us we had a capital fundraising appeal we're a national charity Uh, we don't get any statutory money from the government Uh, we do get some small grant from the scottish government but we have five centers around the country one of which is in scotland Um, this is by far and away the largest center of all of the of the five and uh, some many years ago and the organization has been in existence since 1985 so almost 30 years old now Um, and uh, many years ago uh, we had a capital fundraising appeal from all our supporters I'm glad to say we've got about 40 to 50,000 individual supporters and they constitute about 70 75 percent of all our total income the rest comes from charitable trusts and foundations and we raised five million pounds we bought this site Uh, it was an old it's been variously described as a railway works or printing works uh, and uh, the rest of the money after the purchase of the site was spent on building this building and it is deliberately designed to try to make torch survivors feel at home or feel comfortable uh, so although the administrative block that we've got which is where our fundraisers and our finance department and all those people sit um, the wing which we're sitting in now is deliberately curved now you can say well maybe that follows the lie of the road which is true but it's also deliberately designed that way because many of our torch survivors sadly will have been in buildings with straight corridors where they were tortured and the danger is if you put them into an environment that's similar they may suddenly have a flashback and they may think that they're back again in the place where they're being tortured and a flashback for a torch survivor is not the sort of thing that you and I feel when we're in a place and we have that sense of deja vu haven't I been here before a flashback for a torch survivor is it's real it's happening all over again and you can imagine we 
have to be very careful when people are put into accommodation um, that for people who've been through that traumatic, terrible experience, um, they're not sharing that accommodation because if they're at the stage where they can't control when the flashbacks come or the nightmares come, they can wake up in the middle of the night and if they think it's all happening again, then not only are they a danger to themselves but the other person in the room, for them, they are the torturer. Uh, and so uh, th- there, are, there are those dangers. But you asked me about um, the general uh, remit of the organisation. We're here principally to provide clinical care for survivors of torture from all over the world. Now, obviously, they have to get here in the first place. Uh, we don't operate overseas. Uh, the way they get here usually is as asylum seekers who've already, you know, not only have they suffered torture in their country of origin, but they've usually had a pretty rough journey in getting here in the back of a truck or something like that. And so there's a double trauma there. When they arrive in this country, they're very, very shaken up in indeed and when they claim asylum uh, fortunately if um, the lawyers recognize who are representing them recognize them as torch survivors they will refer them to us sometimes general practitioners will spot people who likely have been tortured and will refer them to us and so we will have in care in our five centers around the country uh, something like a thousand people receiving therapy at any one time and since our origins back in 1985 uh, we've seen about we've had about 50,000 people referred to us from quite literally all all over the world and people will stay in therapy for varying times torture affects every individual in a very individual and different way but probably up to about three years well i see that we've got a lot to talk about here and i see also that there's a a very serious risk that somebody listening to this might find some of what we're going to say upsetting or or disturbing as as well it should be because i know we're dealing with some of the most unpleasant sides of uh, what humans can do to each other here so um, if you're uh, not of a mind to listen to that sort of thing or if there are small ears around you might want to think about listening to this later on perhaps because i want to ask really very specifically and we'll we'll come back to what this center does and what the organization as a whole does but really i want to start to get a feel maybe by thinking about exact obviously anonymized examples of the the sort of uh, situations that people come from because that that generalized idea of torture which is already filling me with horror i think i need to understand on on an individual level yes by all means well there is of course a convention against torture um it goes back to round about the time we were founded and it has a definition of torture which is the deliberate infliction of pain either mentally or physically on somebody either to punish them or to extract uh, information from them or a third party or to punish a third party through through them by the infliction of that that pain and suffering uh, the purpose of torture is to destroy personality and when people come to us they quite literally don't know who they are they've been told that they're not worthy of being members of the human race that they're not members of the human race they can't raise their eyes to look at you they have had their whole personality totally destroyed i need to just put the brakes on for a second there so i can understand that because some of the uh, i guess tv drama depictions of torture seem to involve some kind of tough guy quite often and they want information out of him but what you're describing there doesn't marry up very closely with that at all actually the, the idea of destroying the person well, that's right. Uh, and the trouble is, of course, these programmes like 24, Homeland and, and the others are, are almost a kind of a glorification of torture because, of course, it's always the bad guys who get tortured, not the, not the good guys. At least we're told they're the bad guys. Um, and as you say, you know, they're, they're tortured because they are pretty foul characters and they're being tortured for a purpose to try to extract information. I should add that there is no evidence whatsoever that torture elicits it's that kind of information which is of any value whatsoever. In fact, uh, people who are trained to try to withstand torture will deliberately try to mislead people. But the fact is, under torture, you will say anything to get the torture to stop. So there's no means of of testing whether it's true or, or otherwise. You're just 
say the first thing that comes into your head so it's never been proved that it's a particularly good good use of of, of th- that um, technique and indeed <laughs> torture um, as was practiced hundreds of years ago by the Spanish Inquisition or whatever in many countries torture has de- been deliberately discontinued uh, not for humanitarian reasons because people weren't quite that developed in those time in thinking about uh, the humanity of the matter but because it didn't work uh, it just didn't get the information that that people wanted. But it, it is it is as I say designed to destroy the personality. Now the trouble is, of course, a lot of the time the torture is not even um, justified in any way in the minds of the torturers by trying to get information. It is gratuitous. It is designed to intimidate a population. This year, we are about to produce a report on the Democratic Republic of Congo. We produced one last year on Iran and the one before, uh, two years ago, we reported on Sri Lanka. All about the incidents of torture in those countries, from the documentation of the torture cases of survivors from those countries who come to us. And that report on the Democratic Republic of Congo will make some very grim reading. It is because multiple rape is used regularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo as a form of torture and intimidation. It's a way of quelling uh, a population. It's a way of so intimidating a population that they will not be a trouble at all to those who seize power uh, over them. And that is one of the problems, that it, it, it is sometimes done completely gratuitously. Um, I suppose there's a part of me that's um, that's a little anxious and a little bit self-policing here because although I only reluctantly identify myself as part of the media I'm well aware what the sensationalist angles here could be at the same time I want to understand what uh, for example, the use of rape in the in the context there. So, I asked for a specific example. I wonder if it's possible to focus in on that uh, kind of the, the DRC, as you mentioned. W- when we talk about rape, and presumably there is a cultural context to that, as there would be, in, it would differ throughout the world to some degree. I presume. How is it being used? There, in what way is it being used? What are the what are the dynamics at play? Well, it's being used as a form of humiliation. It's being used as a way of demonstrating to people this is the fear they ought to entertain. Uh, if they step out of line or if um, they do anything that's untoward in the eyes of those who perpetrate these these horrors. And it is done as a form of obviously demonstrating power. Uh, I think one of the tragedies that we see so often in conflicts these days is that rape is seen almost as a corollary of war it's seen as something that just happens and we've worked very closely with the foreign secretary here William Haig uh, whom we commend for his initiative on the prevention of sexual violence in conflict and in fact uh, when he held a meeting at the UN during the General Assembly uh, which was attended by heads of states and uh, ambassadors from all over the world uh, on behalf of this initiative uh, of the trying to prevent sexual violence in conflict and to treat it as a crime, uh, not just as something that is a byproduct uh, of war. Uh, one of the torch survivors from this organisation, who belongs to a network we call the Survivors Speak Out, they're former clients who want to act as ambassadors, who want to tell uh, the story about torture, who want to alert people to the fact that this is going on and the horrors and the, the, the terrible consequences on human beings of what this does and they really are motivated to to do that and the foreign office uh, asked this person to come with them and uh, that person sat on the same platform as William Hague and the United Nations Secretary General's special representative and gave a speech there alongside the two of them it was a very proud moment for us because um, you know here was somebody who'd been brutally tortured um, being able to communicate with heads of state and ambassadors from other countries and saying this is why you really should do something about this and uh, we, we feel that it's going to be successful that there is going to be a protocol there is going to be further activity to try to distance 
the incidence of rape from any conflict uh, and to make sure that uh, it is prosecuted, that there is a commitment by the governments and others that these acts will be prosecuted, they won't just be swept under the carpet. But but in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which I referred to earlier, um, what is striking there is that most of the cases we document are ones that are outside conflict zones. They are actually where it is used, as I mentioned earlier, as this form of intimidation. It's a way of keeping a population under control. And is it really as, as systematised as that, or is it a byproduct of uh, almost a convention in, in lawlessness, or how sort of sanctioned is it by those in charge of one side or the other in the conflict? Well, that will vary, of course, from situation to situation. But, uh, no, we feel this is systematised. This, this is a deliberate act of, uh, of trying to keep the population under control or intimidate them in a way that they will be compliant. Uh, and, and it's um, used for that purpose. You talk about rape, and I assume that, for example, we're talking about, and I I certainly make light of this in no respect whatsoever, of course, Um, for example, some uh, fellow speaks out and uh, the opposition of whatever sort uh, takes out their wrath on the female members of his family. I wonder if I'm being naive in assuming that that's how it works. Well, that's how it works sometimes. Um, It can work in all sorts of ways. And when I talk about rape, I've talked about the Democratic Republic of Congo, where uh, that is used principally uh, against women. But there are parts of the world where uh, male rape is used regularly. I mean, our report last year, for example, on Iran, uh, shows a very, very high incidence, about equal numbers of women and men who've been raped whilst in in, in prison, um, either by other human Human beings or by use of blunt instruments and things of this nature and we think although this is speculation to a certain extent that that form of torture is used quite deliberately because in that culture in that society it is so horrendous it is so countercultural uh, for that sort of thing to happen um, where after all you know homosexuality still carries the death penalty um, that the people the victims of that are very unlikely ever to talk about it even to their closest confidants and uh, that is a way of course of keeping the tortured Uh, quiet about what's happened to them and one of the most difficult things here is when we get people who've lost all trust in all other human beings as a result of what's happened to them uh, one of the most difficult things is to try to re-engage that trust to try to build an aura of trust between the therapist and the client so they feel enabled to talk about these things and you know the naivety in a way of uh, British government officials who think that uh, if you're a genuine asylum seeker that means you must suddenly spill out to the first uniformed stranger you see everything that's happened to you is so crass as to be unbelievable Uh, people won't even talk about those things to us and we are there to help them rebuild their brain broken lives we're there as as therapists but they won't even mention that to us because it's too taboo it's 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 too terrible to try to even talk about it because it recreates the memory of what actually happened and it takes an enormous amount for that to come forward and very often you know people will go through the asylum process here Having had that done to them, uh, they will claim that they've been persecuted in ways that they won't mention that. They will lose their asylum claim. It will go to appeal. They'll lose it on appeal. And it's only when faced with a realistic prospect of being sent back that sometimes in desperation they then talk about that situation. And we then have to initiate what's known as a fresh claim for protection in this country. That's usually viewed with um, some misgiving and doubt by the authorities because the the typical reaction is well if that had really happened to you surely you would have mentioned that right at the very beginning which again shows this demonstrable naivety uh, about how people react when these sort of things happen to them one of the things that I am pleased about with this organization uh, is that we are now at their behest training some of the people in the home office who are the ones responsible for interviewing uh, asylum seekers 
is training them about the difficulties that people who've been tortured have in trying to describe those experiences and how to demonstrate some degree of sensitivity towards that i can uh, we've, we've barely scratched the surface i'm aware i can hardly imagine the uh physical as well but psychological state of somebody who has come from a, I mean, as if coming from a war zone weren't bad enough and and also to have experienced a variety of these appalling tortures and uh, the the trauma of finding their way to this country which i imagine must be full of risks and um more than a little stressful and then winding up here and let's assume they get taken into the asylum detention system uh, what, what is the effect of that on somebody in, in, in that state of mind well it's terrifying um, it's interesting I, I talk obviously to very many torch survivors who are here who are clients and it's very interesting how um, many of them with um, remarkable strength which mercifully will never be put to the test over as to whether we might react in the same way or whether we would even survive that kind of treat- treatment and it's one of the big question marks I think everybody has to ask you know if this happened to me how would I how would I react to it but uh, you know many of those people say to me they've had to come to terms with what happened to them we're helping them through therapy to rebuild their lives but the worst thing of all and probably the greatest insult is to find themselves in front of the authorities here who don't believe it who will not believe that this had happened. Now, sometimes those stories are so horrendous that somebody had been brought up in the United Kingdom, even in a degree of impoverishment, will still have had a life so different from that that has been experienced by a torch survivor that they will not be able to begin to comprehend what it was like to go through that and so therefore there is that suspicion well that can't possibly have been you know you couldn't have got through that Uh, and so there is that what we call the culture of disbelief in the home office which we're trying to counter in the way I described by doing some training with 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 um, members of the home office and and things like this sorry to jump in how do you do you pers- uh, sort of educate them? Well, um, we started with um, an organisation called the Asylum Screening Unit. This is uh, the place that uh, uh, asylum seekers, not just torture survivors, but anybody claiming asylum, will go for the first stage of the process and will have to give their biographical data, how they got to the country and, and things like this. They won't be examined about the nature of their claim for protection at that stage. They won't be asked to talk about uh, why they're claiming that they are in genuine fear of persecution. Uh, But we're training those people to have some degree of sensitivity. Now, uh, until only recently, when they changed the configuration in that asylum screening unit, uh, the way you had to be interviewed was, yes, there was a big glass screen behind which sat a uniformed officer. You sat on a bench which was bolted to the floor three feet away from the screen, surrounded by everybody else who was waiting to be interviewed. And the the intention is that you should then actually explain some of the things that have happened to you, not knowing who the people are around you, literally quite having to shout in order to be heard above the hubbub through the glass window. Well, mercifully, they've understood how insensitive this is, and now there are, are booths where people can be interviewed, particularly over sensitive issues but we started with those and what was interesting is places where asylum seekers are required to report regularly to keep a check on their movements and things like this and they came to us as well and said look we hear that you've been training people in the asylum screening unit Uh, could we have some of that training as well and although it would be quite wrong to pretend that when they leave our training they go away with a damascene conversion of uh, saying oh yes suddenly the light has um been seen and the veil has been lifted from my eyes it is true to say that very many of them say i never looked at it from that perspective before i never thought about it i never really put myself in the position of that individual and trying to understand how i might react and and that's half the battle once you've got people into that situation you're beginning to get a degree of empathy prior to that beginning of awareness 
and of nuance. What is your suspicion that the view of these asylum seekers was? If we're talking about the, the chap on the other side of the screen who's asking the questions, how do you suppose they were processing what they were seeing in front of them? Well, I fear you can't divorce human beings from the culture in which they exist. And we exist in this country with a general um, anti-immigration bias. We can see that from the opinion polls. Uh, We have the ghastly tabloid press which will visit any kind of offence against foreigners or whatever and build up this kind of hatred or loathing or suspicion. And so, therefore, if you are born into a culture where you believe everybody comes from less fortunate lands and really are coming as some form of economic migrant or better to better their lives rather than because they are genuinely fleeing persecution, you will be suspicious about everything people say. You will have a tendency not to believe them rather than to believe them. Uh, and, and this is the greatest tragedy for people who come here. I mean, they've, they've experienced so much, they've suffered so much, um, and they're meeting people who have not got an open mind as to beginning to believe what they say. And very often, of course, uh, these people arrive with no documentation, they have no real supporting evidence. I mean, their word has to be what is believed because they can't present the evidence. I mean, they can't produce their families have been murdered around their uh, in front of their very eyes to support their story um, they can't get access to document to government documents or whatever if it's the government that's been persecuting them uh, so it's it's very very difficult now of course um, we're not so naive as to think that some people don't try it on some people don't come with prepared stories some people don't um, learn from others that if you say this then you're more likely to be allowed to remain in this country than otherwise but there is no real quantification of that there's no uh, suggestion that this is so widespread as to be the majority of cases which would justify that degree of suspicion uh, uh, that is engendered and that is really applied throughout all those kind of applications and part of our task is to try to change that attitude i suppose the counter view would have to be something along the lines of you you can't know Um, But I I suspect there must be ways in which you could at least intuit, if not um, uh, bring your experience to bear and say, actually, possibly I do know. Well, uh, and the other thing you have to remember, of course, is this, that um, if you're hauled up before a criminal court um, on a charge of shoplifting or something like that, the prosecution has to prove uh, beyond all reasonable doubt, either to the magistrate or to a jury. It's a very, very high burden of of proof very high standard of of proof i should say the burden is on the prosecution to prove it uh, and it's a very high standard even in a civil court where you're having a dispute over your neighbor's fence or something like that or whether their tree is growing over the top you have to show that on what's known as the balance of probabilities in order to establish according to the law in order to establish that you are a genuine refugee you only have to show a reasonable likelihood of these things happen it's a very low standard of proof and yet consistently we find a much higher standard of proof is being applied to the uh, the stories that are told by asylum seekers and torture survivors about what's what's happened to them one of the things we do, uh, apart from providing the therapy, uh, is to provide what we call medico-legal reports. Now, these are written by doctors who are trained in what's known as the Istanbul Protocol. And this is an international standard which was thrashed out, as you might imagine, in Istanbul. That's why it's called the Istanbul Protocol. It's a UN document. And it was done in 1999, and it was felt that there had to be some international standard about how you document torture. And so this means that both mental and principally physical scarring is given a gradation according to this Istanbul protocol, which goes from the highest level which this scar is diagnostic of torture. In other words, there can be no other possible cause. It could only be torture which caused this harm. And it goes right the way down through a series of gradations to it just being consistent with. And that means that well, it might have been torture, it might have been somebody leaning up against a hot pipe, they might have got somebody else to do it, 
on them or whatever it could it could have been done in, in that way and the the point about these medical legal reports is they're written by expert doctors who have to document everything so they can't only document the scars and the evidence of torture which is diagnostic of torture they have to also mention the ones which they think well we don't really think this was caused by torture we think this was probably a car accident or or some or something like that and that's what gives them such strength because they are expert disinterested reports they're not partisan in any way some of those people for whom we write the medical legal reports are our clinical clients as well but they're not exclusively so i mean we get uh, referrals from lawyers in order for them to have a report to support the protection claim by the asylum seeker who may not be uh, one who's receiving clinical therapy from us uh, at all but we then compile those reports from a particular country into what we call a country of origin report and those are the ones I've been talking about the one that we're producing this year on the Democratic Republic of Congo the one last year on Iran and two years ago on on Sri Lanka and they are very very powerful reports and I'll tell you a little story if I may about the one we we did on Iran last year now, remember that since 1979, when the current regime came into being in, in Iran, uh, the government there has consistently refused to admit that torture ever takes place in Iran, despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite all this documentary evidence. When we produced that report on Iran, we worked very closely with the UN Special Rapporteur on Iran. Uh, and in fact, he was so impressed by the quality of the evidence that we'd produced on Iran using these medical legal reports that he appended a synopsis of that to his own report uh, to, the, to the UN. Well, in Geneva, when they had the hearings, and there was a, a, an Iranian representative there from the government, Mr. Larijani, uh, our findings were put to him and said, what do you make of this report, which documents beyond doubt that torture is taking place in Iran? And do you know what he did? He put his hands in the air and he said, well, who can say if torture is taking place in Iran or not? What I can say is it's not at the wish of the government, it's uh, contrary to Sharia law, it's contrary to Iranian domestic law, but who can say? And the UN Special Rapporteur came up to us afterwards, and he was over the moon, he said, do you realise that is the first time ever an Iranian representative has actually admitted to the fact that torture may be taking place, and that's entirely as a result of your evidence. Nothing else could have achieved that. And that is, I think, a very, very powerful message. I mean, it means that a fairly small charity like ours uh, really does punch above its weight in the international sphere and can really hold countries to account. And it's, we have three main objectives about rehabilitation, uh, protection and accountability in our strategic plan. And the accountability one we take very seriously because it's only by showing the spotlight, shining the spotlight on countries that are torturers that we can begin to humiliate them and make them feel uncomfortable in international circles and turn other countries into being scrutineers of what's going on there, such as we've got coming up in March, where once again Sri Lanka will be on the hot spot in the Human Rights Council, and I've been talking to the Foreign Office Minister here and to others about putting pressure on them because we have got that evidence which we produced over two years ago of not just the appalling atrocities that took place in the closing months of the civil war up until may 2009 which was been well documented in two programs now by channel four uh, called the killing zone and, and such like where women and, and and children were herded into a center and then shelled uh, uh, but we have that evidence of ongoing torture of people who've come to this country and then gone back to sri lanka uh, because they want to attend a family function or go back to university there or, or whatever and then have been picked up by the authorities notoriously 
in white vans and are then taken and tortured. And it's when they finally escape from that, very often by their families having to pay a bribe to get them out, and they come back to this country, that's when we see them, and we can then document the torture that they've suffered long after that conflict has has passed. Now, I'm not saying that happens to everybody who goes back to Sri Lanka, of course not. It is a targeted group, and we've identified that group as being Tamils with a real or perceived link with the Tamil Tigers, the LTTE. Um, and, and these are the ones who are being picked up. And, and horrifyingly, one of our clients, for example, uh, when he was picked up by the authorities there, uh, was uh, accused of being a, a, a terrorist. And they actually then showed him a photograph of him attending a demonstration in this country against the Sri Lankan government. So it shows that they've got spies everywhere documenting these things. Well, we'll be coming uh, back to London uh, in just a moment. We need to stop for a sponsor break. And we'll be right back here with Keith Best after that. London Est Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe and at the Freedom From Torture organisation. I'm with Keith Best, the chief executive, and we've been talking about the work of freedom from torture and what i've been learning so far is that it's in some respects preemptive gave the example of uh, sri lankan involvement and also a, a sort of educational and you're very much advocates for people who i'm realizing have absolutely nothing at the point at which they most need to have all sorts of support and they're uh, having to represent themselves until such point as uh, Presumably they hear about you or you make contact with them. But I got the impression from the beginning of a conversation that you're not going out and finding people so much as having them contact you in some way. So I'm wondering how that process works. Well, I, I suppose the easiest way actually to do this would be to take a particular case study if one comes to mind. And perhaps we could start by saying what has happened to this person and then their path here and, and what's happened from the point that they uh, came through your front door, metaphorically or uh, otherwise. I'll give you um, a, a personal experience. I know this person very well. I won't name the country, but it's a country in Africa uh, and a country notorious for the use of child soldiers. And we've seen in recent films that have been uh, made about some of these things, some examples of that. And I think that does bring home to people who see those films some of the real horrors. Well, this particular person I'm talking about uh, was in school at the age of 13 and was then abducted forcibly by uh, a, a group that recruited child soldiers he was then taken into the bush and he was then made to do the most horrendous things uh, to other human beings with a machete to like cutting off uh, limbs and uh, ears and things like this of people he was ordered to do that too and you've got to remember that many of these people uh, at that stage have probably not had the kind of upbringing that you and I might have had where you know we're taught at a fairly early stage what is evil what is what is right what is wrong and and such like and uh, you know these people are taken into an environment where they are made implicit in these atrocities they 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 the whole object is to make them complicit as people who perpetrate these things so so they immediately uh, lose any sense of identity as being ordinary people they become alongside the adults who are training them to commit these atrocities and he knew that if he tried to escape that then the penalty for that was death he was going to be shot And for five years, he existed in that awful environment until he saw his chance. And at the age of 18, he managed to run away and escape. And by a very uh, torturous and circuitous route, he found his way to this country and claimed asylum. Now, I give you that example because uh, we regard him as a victim. We regard him him, as somebody who's had the most horrendous experience, who was abducted against his will and made to do these things. But in other people's eyes, such as the British government, he's a war criminal. 
and so therefore not deserving of the protection that might otherwise be given to people. And I use that example because it, it, it points to the dilemma about some of the situations that some of these people come from. We don't think we get many people who have tortured others themselves coming as victims, but it wouldn't be unusual if that were the case, because sometimes um, the two are uh, are represented in one human being, depending upon what they've had to do and, and, and where they've been in a particular time. But a lot of the time, it's being in the wrong place at the wrong time, belonging to the wrong tribe, or whatever it might be, that means you get these things done to you. It, it, it's not. It's not done in a single individual way, um, where you know, as we see on the on these popular shows like Homeland and Twenty Four or whatever, where it's always the bad guy who they want to get information from about where the other bad guys are and such like. It's not like that at all. And really, what that opens up as well for me is that the mere fact that somebody has been tortured, if you can call it a mere fact, doesn't bestow upon them goodness. They could be a rotter by some measure and yet be tortured. So presumably you've got to transcend good and bad straight away. Yes. And and of course, a lot of the time, too, um, you will find a situation where um, a woman, say, gets picked up by a group and in effect becomes a sex slave to the leader of that group or whatever, uh, and then manages to escape. Sometimes there's a lot of money that has to pass hands to get people out of that kind of environment. Sometimes families will club together. We had one case I know of a, of a, of a lady who was in very, very grave danger having been abused and one day her father uh, came and got her from the school where she was and just took her to the airport and put on a plane and the plane was bound for here it was just to get her out of the country because he knew what terrible future danger she was likely to to face and that's a terrible wrench when you think about it but you know what do you do for your children i mean if if your children are likely to end up dead as a result or so totally devastated as a result of what's going to happen to them you do try to get them out of the out of the place and the, you know there are there are legions of stories of, of of people who've come here by a variety of routes i think that the real tragedy is that people here find it so hard to understand that because it is so alien to the environment in which we live we we cannot really begin to comprehend how that kind of situation can arise and yet for many people this is the daily fear that they they live in uh, and who can blame them for trying to escape from that fear in in terms of the work you do and i think i mean uh, i think i mean you individually before you as an organization I guess there's got to be some element of recalibrating your moral sensibilities to be able to deal with this. And I'm, I'm curious how you go about setting your moral values, if, if you apply moral values to, to things. And uh, I suppose that the ancillary question there is about your emotional involvement, the work. But, but perhaps we could start with the moral side of it. I think you have to understand that whereas there is enormous capacity within human beings to show great compassion and kindness and and love and generosity, there is also deep-seated within us all the capacity to do great evil, to do great, very, very terrible things. And we've seen that throughout history. Uh, It was rather interesting just the other night I was watching the television about um, Gaddafi, um, and how, you know, to start with, everybody thought he was a charming young man, I mean, he was good-looking and everything like that, and he became a monster. He he developed into becoming a monster. Now, somewhere deep within, within him, clearly, was that capacity, but up until a certain stage, it, it, it had been suppressed. And, uh, you know, some people can suppress that evil feeling within themselves to a better extent than, than than others, but I think you have to start from the fact that uh, human beings can be very evil as well as being very good. And um, here we see the best and the worst 
in humanity. We see the best of people who somehow managed to survive these terrible things and who, with uh, some help from us in therapeutic terms, can rebuild their broken lives and re-engage with the community to redeploy their sometimes very considerable talents and skills that have been suppressed as a result of the torture and can begin to have some meaningful life again. Uh, But then, of course, we hear the stories about these people who've gratuitously done this sort of thing. I mean, you've only got to look at uh, the documentation of what happened in Sri Lanka, and we mentioned Sri Lanka in the closing stages of the Civil War. A lot of that documentation is taken as ghastly, macabre memorabilia on soldiers' mobile phones of the people they were murdering, the people they were torturing, the people they were raping, the people whose heads they were cutting off, whom they were terrifying, who they were tying to trees before shooting them and things like this. A lot of that footage is from soldiers' own mobile phones. What kind of mentality is it that actually makes you want to record that sort of evil? And you have to understand that that is possible. You can't really start making moral judgments about that, however much you might want to. You have to accept that that's what goes on, and you have to use the the best tools you can to try to ensure that it doesn't happen in in the future, and that those who've suffered that sort of thing, if they do survive, are given the chance to re-engage with society uh, again. But here, I mean, the second part of your question was very much about well how do we deal with that kind of um, trauma uh, and it is it is uh, does have a name vicarious trauma it's where um, people who are engaging in the therapy or not just the clinicians um, but those who have to write up these stories the administrators the typists the people like this um, where they can be deeply affected by it uh, when we were doing the research on um, the countries of origin that I mentioned, I mean, our reports actually do not have in them some of the most horrendous stories that we uh, know about, the most awful documentation of torture. It is just too gruesome, to put it there. The impact of that, I know, on the individual who was writing that was dramatic. I mean, it really had a very depressive effect. We have uh, an employee um, uh, assistance program where people can get counselling in case of that. We will have peer groups who meet to discuss the way they feel about things. We are always alert to if there's a change of mood in somebody if they start becoming depressed or irritable or or if they start coming in late or whatever the sort of things very often you would associate with somebody who's being stressed at work can also apply to somebody who's really feeling the emotion is getting to them about uh, this and of course the trouble is if if you can't offload that in some way you take that home with you and then you offload it somewhere somewhere else and my my wife is um is the chief executive of a charity that provides free accommodation for the relatives of children who are undergoing serious surgery or treatment at the children's hospital and i mean i'm sure she wouldn't mind me me saying this um but very often you know she is the first person the parents will meet having just come off the ward being told their child has died and she has to deal with that. And, of course, the way she deals with it is when we sit down and have dinner together, she offloads all that and, and she talks about it. And I know what she's doing, so, you know, I can, I can take it because I know what's, what's happening. She's actually offloading that, that burden in the only way she really can, which is to, to me because she knows I may have some understanding about that. Now, there are different mechanisms that you, you can use um, but peer support is one of those where you know other people are going through a similar experience and then you can talk openly about that I- experience as well. But we, we are very much alive to that. And one thing I uh, introduced into this organisation is you know we have regular management supervision sessions with the, the staff by, by the managers. And one of the things I introduced was a, a, an automatic 
part of that has to be asking people how they are dealing emotionally with what they're seeing, what they're reading, and it can affect anybody. You know, it can, we have a fundraising department. Well, they have to write up these stories for purposes of fundraising, of telling you know our donors these are the people we're we're helping. I was speaking to a doctor who specialises in serious trauma and and d- d- dealt with it regularly at the time I was speaking to him, and he was saying that one of the dangers of the line of work he was involved in dealing with these really appalling gruesome injuries frequently many times a day was that in a way lesser injuries the breaking of a leg for example which is no paltry thing that suddenly seemed trivial and simply because it was stacked against this thing i wonder if you and your staff are sort of reluctant to acknowledge the depth of feeling because you're speaking with people who've lived this stuff firsthand that might have been the case. I think uh, there is now a general recognition in our staff about the dangers of bottling these things up and the need to um, share them if you feel they're, they're getting to you and that uh, it can have quite dramatic consequences on your own personality if you do just let that bottle up and, and, and fester within you. And so I think there is a, a very realistic attitude both amongst the management and the staff in the organisation and you know, half our staff, we call them staff because we don't discriminate in any shape or form, are volunteers. These are people who come in, they're already either retired or they're working elsewhere in the, the health services or whatever, and they come and, get, and they, they, they give their services free to us to help us. We're, we we couldn't do quite literally half the work we do without the volunteers who come here and work. But you won't know what a volunteer looks like because they look just like everybody else. <laughs> you know, everybody's treated the same here. And, and they too obviously need this kind of assistance um, if if they find that this is really getting to them because many of those people may come here to offer their services because they feel philanthropically they can really help and make a difference for people rebuilding their lives but also you know it may be something where perhaps they've been involved in uh, mental illness care or something of that nature but they haven't actually dealt with torture survivors so it's a different aspect of that and it's giving them that kind of experience and understanding a, a deep a broader understanding of that kind of problem and they may not immediately appreciate when they come here that some of this can be really deeply traumatising. It really can begin to get to you if, if, you're, if you're not careful. And so we, as I say, we do have um, several mechanisms to try to overcome that and help people if they're going through that, what we call vicarious trauma. How did it work for you? Have you had to go through a wall at some point? I think I, I'm a lawyer by profession, uh, and I think people in professions, and I think this you know applies equally to the uh, clinical medical profession as well, to a certain extent uh, are able to build up a professional barrier that, um, yes, of course it affects you. We're all human beings. You can't read these stories without being affected um, by them. But if you maintain in the back of your mind, this is all part of the professional relationship and that uh, uh, this is what you do as a job of work to try to help people who've gone through that sort of thing, um, then you do have an inbuilt self-protection mechanism. The people I'm more concerned about are the ones who don't fall within those categories and who, as I say, may be the administrators or receptionists or people like that who may pick up some of these stories and who won't have had, by way of their training or background, anything really substantial to help them deal with, with that. And that's, those are the people we have to really watch out for. What sort of lawyer are you or were you? Well, a good one, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a barrister by profession and um, I 
practiced for 14 years uh, doing general common law, which uh, that meant uh, sort of um, representing people as uh, defendants in criminal cases. I did prosecution work as well. I did some civil work, divorce work, family work, um, employment tribunals. It was a great variety. I mean, very few barristers now are able to uh, have that kind of breadth of workload they tend to specialize in sets of chambers which are devoted to human rights or employment or commercial law or or whatever it, it might be um i i found that very very interesting um i i then went into parliament for eight years and when i came out i wanted to continue in public service of some sort and so the voluntary sector the not-for-profit sector was the obvious place to go when i when i came out of parliament i um i i first of all became the director of uh, another charity called Prisoners Abroad, which cares for the welfare and interests of British citizens who are detained overseas. That in itself can rend some pretty uh, horrendous stories. Uh, And then for 16 years I ran an organisation called the Immigration Advisory Service, which provided free legal advice and representation to immigrants and asylum seekers. So I'm I'm very familiar with the sector of those who are claiming asylum and the immigration problems and things like that that that, that they have. Uh, But obviously the people we were dealing with there... Uh, didn't have the same traumatic background that the clients do here. So, yes, my eyes have been opened. Uh, I think they've been opened in a beneficial way because I don't think I realised until I came here that there were organisations, and sadly not nearly enough in a way, uh, who do this sort of work and who are specialist in helping people rebuild their lives. And I think I've had my eyes opened to the appalling consequences of torture too you know when you see these things and again i keep on harking back to these populist programs like homeland and 24 where you know people may get tortured and suddenly then they get up and walk away or uh, and, and and you don't see the consequences the consequences of torture are horrendous And it's rather interesting, if you look at what's going on in the United States now, the former administration under George Bush Jr. almost celebrated the fact that they waterboarded people. This is simulated drowning. Uh, They claimed, they invented a new term term for it called enhanced interrogation techniques. They claimed this did did no lasting damage or whatever. Uh, They claimed also it worked in that it elicited valuable information. They homed in particularly on one individual called Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, who was allegedly responsible for the 9-11 outrages. And... uh, It was always claimed by George Bush that uh, this had led to him giving information. Uh, We don't know what that information was. We don't know how valuable it was. What is interesting, though, is it's subsequently been discovered that that information, such as it was, was volunteered a long time after the waterboarding had stopped. And what nobody has explained is why it took 183 times of waterboarding on that particular individual before they got anything whatsoever. And we have psychiatrists here who's done a a lot of work on this and who completely confronts this notion that somehow you can waterboard people without long-term consequences. Simulated drowning is a a terrible form of torture. It leaves you with the same flashbacks, the same nightmares as other forms of torture. It is a form of torture. You can't get away from that. And what is interesting now is I think uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein and the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee is now looking at this and what we can gather from the reports if we get to see those reports in the public domain without them being heavily redacted so that they become almost meaningless i think what we will see is a complete recantation of this notion that there is a thing called an enhanced interrogation technique it will set it quite clear that this is torture it's very interesting that the obama administration has now said this must never happen uh, again um I think one of the problems, of course, is um, what actually stands out as torture. You can always look at those sort of 
situations may be on the cusp where somebody's thrown into a, a darkened cell and deprived water and light and food for a period of time. Now, is that torture? Um, or does it become torture once it becomes sustained? Does it become torture once the intent behind doing that is to come within the definition of torture within the Convention Against Torture? In other words, a deliberate act to punish somebody or to elicit information from them or from another another person. Is that what then makes it torture? I think one of the difficulties here is we are dealing with very often moving goalposts. Um, well, I wonder how you would essay that question. Well, I would, I would say uh, that, that if, if um, for example, a country's prison system all has small, fairly airless cells and everybody's put into those cells, then you're, you're not going to be able to show really that that is a form of torture. But if one individual is put into that kind of situation, I mean, like, for example, punishment, where people, you know, you see these awful films about prisoner of war camps where people are put in the hole, as it's called, where quite literally they're put in a hole in the ground with just a grill over the top and they're left there in the baking sun. Well, that is clearly torture. I mean, it's designed to torture the person. It's designed to, to punish them. So you, you have to look at the intent behind it as well as the, the act itself to uh, be able to de- determine that. I was going to ask... Previously, I was going to ask you how the how the job had sort of changed you in the four years that you've been doing. But what you've revealed about the other aspects of your work prior to this make me realise that you've been dealing with for a long time. Presumably, you, know, you had your surgeries as a, a member of parliament, and you'd have been dealing with, I, I say ordinary, but, but I do mean kind of um, feet on the ground problems in people's lives that they're bringing to you. Um, and, and presumably, working as a barrister, similarly, you'd be seeing people in difficult circumstances so what i'm I'm building up is that you must have a serious depth of understanding of the difficult positions the appalling positions that people can be in and i'm wondering with that sort of awareness going on in you where in the the world where in our, our society where in london perhaps bring it back to london you could see that we really need a serious injection of understanding of sympathetic thinking um, beyond the, those places where you're already attempting to educate uh, institutions in that way. Where, where else do you see a, a need for those qualities? It's a massive task. Um, I don't purport to have any greater awareness or understanding than anybody else. I learn something new every day. Like most of us, um, I happen to learn something new about a particularly awful situation that's going on, and that's torturing people. So my knowledge is accumulating on a daily basis about those things, and yes, you do reflect upon it. I think what saddens me is the way so many of our people in this country who you don't expect, nor would you want them to become expert in that field or whatever. I mean, people live their daily lives. They don't want to delve into these things. But they are so often fed a diet of misinformation, of partial stories, of only one side of the argument, that it can build prejudice so easily and it's built upon total ignorance. Um, I'm always minded um, of um, Horace Walpole, arguably our very first Prime Minister, who actually carried that that, that title. Um, when we had in 1739 what was popularly called the War of Jenkins' Ear because a British captain called Jenkins had allegedly had his ear cut off by a, a Spanish um, ship uh, crew, and uh, this sparked fury and a great deal of jingoism in the country, and everybody said we must go to war with Spain, and we did go to war with with, with Spain. And uh, his uh, his phrase at the time was, "Now they are ringing their bells, but soon they will be ringing their hands." In other words, we'd gone into something, probably on a false assumption. Uh, in a way that nobody had really thought through and with a great deal of enthusiasm and then suddenly everybody realised or should have realised that this was a terrible mistake. How often can we say that's been happening now? Iraq, Afghanistan, um, 
the, the, the examples are legion, um, where you know, the First World War, here we are, on the anniversary of the outbreak of the First World War, the enthusiasm, it was all going to be over by Christmas and everything, and it turned out to be a horrible misunderstanding about the whole, the whole thing. It's, that's what I think saddens me, that somehow we have to keep on relearning the lessons of history. We can't actually take them and store them and use them as a way of leading better lives and trying to ensure that the old horrors don't replicate themselves in the in the future. It, it, it's, it's, that's the real tragedy of humanity. Uh, and, you know, if, if, if one had more knowledge about these things, there would be a groundswell of indignation, a complete desire to say this must stop. And people have enormous power if they mobilise, particularly in the modern day with the internet and digital communications and Facebook and Twitter and things going viral. There's, I mean, one of our supporters is Stephen Fry. He retweeted something of ours not so long ago. I think it reached 7 million people or 4 million people. I mean, it, it went all over the place. <laughs> These are very powerful tools. And I think we have got to ourselves who are principally concerned about these issues because this is our daily life working um, with these problems uh, we have got to be much more adept at trying to make other people understand these things and it, it is true also that although we have to be very circumspect about the individual cases and we, you know, we have to heavily anonymise anything that we say about clients, that's why I'm afraid I'm really quite reluctant to talk about some individual uh, stories and certainly not attributing any to particular countries where there's even a prospect that they might be traced, traced back to the, the real individuals themselves. Nevertheless, uh, people do find fascinating individual stories and very often in our literature to our donors for example again heavily anonymized with different names used and different countries so it can't be traced back but nevertheless it's a true story we are telling our supporters about somebody who's come to us and something about what they've been through and something how we can help them get through i think one major contribution that could be made is to go back to that comment I said much earlier about the greatest, uh, the greatest indignity, the greatest horror for somebody coming here is not to be believed. If we could just show a little bit more understanding of people who come here and not just follow the tabloids in the condemnation of foreigners or, or whatever, if we could just have a little more open-mindedness, that would go a very long way in itself. Uh, like somebody who has been interviewed many times uh, before you have uh, finished this at exactly the right point on the clock and uh, on exactly the right note. Uh, from which to say uh, thank you of course and also to invite you to uh, let us know your, your the website address where people can find out more about the organisation and how they can become a donor yes thank you please go to www.freedomfromtorture all one word dot org uh, that takes you straight to our, our, web, our website um, and there you've got everything from the events that we organize how you can donate indeed if you're a lawyer listening to this or a general practitioner and you know somebody who may be a torch survivor it tells you how you can refer those people to us so that we can decide whether we can take them in and and help them on the road to rehabilitation uh, and and i do urge people just to look and hopefully just to learn a little bit it's not a pleasant subject it's not the sort of thing that you make yourself popular over by talking at dinner parties or anything like that but uh, if if we can just really alert people more to these things going on, then maybe one or two people will say, this is so horrendous, this is so awful, this is so contrary to anything that should exist in humanity, I want to do something to stop it.